0: Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the Church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates.
1: Since we abandoned his scriptures, it is not surprising that he has abandoned us to the teaching of the Pope and to the lies of men. This was Martin Luther writing in What to Look For and Expect in the Gospels, which he authored in the spring of 1522. A few months prior, on May 4th, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way home from a trial called the Diet of Worms, where he is marked as a heretic. While on the road, he is grabbed and secretly transported to the Wartburg Castle near Eisenach, where he lives for a time in hiding, but he is still at work and has a very productive season of publication. So let's talk about that. And to join me today is our special guest, Dr. Stephen Ecker. He's an assistant professor of church history and Reformation at our sister seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Ecker is a two-time graduate at the University of St. Andrews with his Master's of Literature and his Doctor of Philosophy. He also holds his MDiv in Biblical Languages from Southeastern. He's published numerous articles on the Reformation and contributed to multiple books on the same subject. You can find him in all the usual social media channels, often with the hashtag, uh, I love the Reformation. Dr. Eckert, we are so glad to have you join us again on This Week in Church History.
0: Thanks so much. As always, I'm super stoked to be here.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm really excited because uh, there's such uh, an amazing story here that uh, you may know about Luther. You may know about the 95 Theses. But there are some other significant events in his life that really set up the Reformation uh, well. And one of the first ones is uh, really the diet of worms. Uh, what is this except for a, a radical weight loss strategy to uh, have a diet of worms?
0: Yeah, obviously, um, certainly it's, it's a, an interesting meal that we consider. <laughs> um, but in this sense, uh, it is uh, more formally uh, what, what Luther had hoped really would be a, a formal debate um, about his, his teachings, uh, but became uh, anything but that. It was really more uh, more a, an indictment of his teachings, and uh, rather than a debate, it was really just uh, his chance to, before uh, the empire, to, uh, to either recant his teachings or to, uh, to stand on them Based upon the authority of Scripture,
1: and and it's here at this event uh, that he makes uh, a, at least uh, a, a very clear stand. Um, uh, we know, um, but it's it's where we all also get the very bold statement, or at least apocryphal statement, uh, that here he stands; he could do no other. Correct.
0: Correct. Yeah. So remember, here you know we're talking about um, the. The, the Diet of Worms here, in his famous statement um, from from uh, uh, April of, of 1521. So, so five, literally, quite literally, 500 years ago. You know, by this point in time, um, Luther is a very well known figure uh, on the landscape of uh, of Europe. Uh, he has grown from being this uh, obscure monk um, in Wittenberg to now uh, he's become really an outlaw of the empire. And uh, so by the time you you get to this this very famous imperial diet, uh, Luther has already um, come to grips with some of his most important uh, doctrinal beliefs, things like the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. He's already, going back to 159 in the Leipzig debate, he's already come to this affirmation of sola scriptura, that is the Bible being the normative authority when it comes to establishing doctrine and church practice, he's already been both under the threat of papal excommunication and now Mm -hmm. formally excommunicated. Uh, And so now he has, he's basically been cast aside uh, by, by Rome. Uh, He is um, he is a pariah in many, and basically in all Roman Catholic circles, though he's beginning to become really a well-known household name throughout certain, uh, parts of, of Europe, and certainly we know by 1521, I mean, they're reading Luther's writings not just in Germany, but they're in places right. like England. Uh, he's becoming really uh, a celebrity by this point in time, uh, and yet now this is the time when he's going to be formally examined uh, by the empire, and so he, at the Diet of Worms, for instance, um, he's, he's going to stand quite literally before the emperor Charles V uh, and face uh, these charges and these, uh, these requests ultimately for him to, to recant his teachings. And so it's one thing to have the the weight of the Pope um, with his spiritual authority, but now you actually have the civil authority of the, the -hmm. emperor himself. And so he goes to Worms, not even sure that he's going to, uh, to, to leave. I mean, he's uh, you know, he knows that there is a very real possibility that he'll lose his life as a result of this. And I think as we, as we talk about his story, I think that's one of the things I encourage uh, people to always remember in this. We know the end, right? Like we right. know that Luke lives till 1546, that he dies in his bed, surrounded by friends, right? We, we know that he doesn't. Right. Uh, and so we just kind of keep that in mind that the weight that is really on him in these moments.
1: So let me ask some basic questions, too, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with um, some of the, the Reformation uh, concepts. Uh, like, explain what is a diet uh, and, uh, you know, what, what, does that, what does that mean when we talk about the diet of Worms? Worms is a city, and when we've talked about it as this, uh, this assembly, what, what is the diet? Why, why this title, Diet?
0: So, I mean, it's, it's a it's a it's a formal uh, imperial convening where uh, they're going to consider uh, certain issues that that have a bearing upon uh, society as a whole. And so, uh, in this sense, this is why the emperor is there as opposed to uh, as opposed to the pope or even the uh, you know certain other religious uh, figures. And so, in this sense, then what, we're, what you're seeing is because you've got the wedding of church and state. For matters like this, that even as we think about them as theological matters, they also have a bearing upon civil matters as well. And so now, this is really uh, what this is really the the empire's uh, desire to deal with the Luther problem specifically uh, because of the sake of or for the sake ultimately uh, of unity of the empire. You're starting to already mm-hmm. see fissure and fragmentation. Uh, and so this is this is a formal gathering to, to deal with this. Again, Luther thinks this is going to be more of a uh, debate, a chance for him to, to maybe make his, his thinking uh, more clear. Uh, but uh, at the end, in fact, basically all of his writings are laid out on a table and he's asked in one sweeping statement to either affirm these writings or recant them. Uh, and so even in that moment, um, you know, Luther asks that they be divided up. I mean, he says, surely there's some of these writings that, that you guys would agree with. Not all of, you know, certainly they're not all scathing writings like his very famous polemical treaties from 1520. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're not interested in that. They're interested in a yay or a nay, again, because they're just trying to deal with this on the civil level uh, to address this fracture and fissure. And so you can feel like the weight of this. Luther actually asks for the evening to consider this uh, and to, to to ultimately then come back and make make a stand on this. I think it's also important to remember that in a very real sense that there is a lot of weight. This is a stressful moment for him. At the same time, again, he is a very popular figure. It's not like he he just comes into town on his own. I mean, he comes in almost with an entourage. Uh, the There was a, a Roman Catholic papal legate that was there who had written back to the Pope and said of the people who are, are at Worms, 90% of them in essence are shouting and cheering the name of Luther in, in mm. support and adoration. The other 10% are just shouting things like down with the Pope. And so he had <laughs> Luther Luther by this time has really tapped into a, a, a grassroots movement, has really tapped into, uh, you know, the German populace uh, through writing and doing theology in their native tongue, uh, talking about things like the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, inviting German laity into doing theology. These are, right. these are the things that are invigorating to them. They're, they're enfranchising to them. And so they're very supportive of him. So, so it's not as if it's as dire as sometimes we think. And yet he's standing before the emperor saying, I'm unwilling to recant because of my stand On the authority of of scripture.
1: And that is such an important claim, and uh, actually part of our story as we kind of move forward. Uh, But let me ask this question first. Um, Here's this imperial diet, we have the full force of the ecclesial and the secular authorities all present. How is it not that Luther is arrested? And simply tried as a heretic right then and there. How is he allowed to start walking home?
0: Yeah. Well, remember that we think of this largely on a theological and a religious level, but obviously politics plays a crucial role in this. And so, in this in this case, there is a man by the name of uh, Frederick the Wise, who was the the Elector Prince of Saxony, uh, who was uh, not only a you know the the Elector of the the region that Luther was was serving in in Wittenberg. Uh, not only was he one of the, the principal supporters of the University of Wittenberg and things like that, but he became an advocate and a supporter, a defender of Luther, mm-hmm. even as Luther was doing things that undercut certain aspects of Frederick's life that were very, very prideful to him. For instance, I mean, Frederick the Wise had a massive relics collection in yep. Wittenberg. That was how the 95 Theses came into being and being published on October 31st of 1517, pilgrims were coming to Wittenberg to see Frederick's relic collection uh, and so and to receive a papal indulgence. And so this is why he did it on that day. And yet, even though Luther's doing certain things that may have uh, undercut even some financial components of Frederick the Wise, uh, there's also a sense in which Frederick knew that this was a chance for Germany to gain more independence Mm-hmm. From uh, the Roman authorities, uh, it was also a way for him to champion his university. Uh, I mean, who doesn't? You know, in this sense, all press is good press, even if it's right. bad press. Uh, and so, uh, he really did like the idea of free thinking and and uh, and what and what Luther was doing. I mean, remember when Luther gets to Wittenberg? It's a it's a town that he calls on the edge of the earth. Right. Um, but by the time Luther dies in 1546, it is a massive, bustling town with a vibrant economy. It's now got multiple printing presses. It's got students coming from all over to Europe to study at the university. And so Frederick the Wise knows. He sees the value. It's in- quite interesting that he sees, has the foresight to see the value of somebody like Luther, even though in all likelihood they never actually met formally He still became a champion, defender, and advocate for Luther and worked behind the scenes politically to secure his safety.
1: So uh, this is where our story then comes in. Luther is on his way home and he's forcefully taken on his journey. Uh, Explain what's going on there and how that actually works out as part of the means of protecting him uh, for the future.
0: Yeah, so in essence, after a week called this his, his famous mic drop moment at, at Berms, <laughs> uh Luther eventually will leave uh, again with with a with a small entourage heading back uh, to Wittenberg. And again, this is these are these are multiple day treks from various locations, stopping in different places. Uh, and so this is this is really what ties in our day. Uh specifically uh when uh in the beginning of May uh of 1521. Uh, Luther is a late one evening on the road is basically, you could say, kidnapped. I mean, he is there's a a group of a group of knights that show up. He's unsure really what's going on. The people who are with him don't know what's going on. (laughs) Uh, And and he is he is unceremoniously whisked away into the night, the dead of night in Germany. And uh, unbeknownst to to basically everyone but a few people, including Frederick the Wise, Luther has basically been whisked away uh in hiding I mean they they're, his way of, of of protecting Luther at this time is to remove him ultimately from from the scene and so uh, that's that's what he does luther is it's taken to uh, what is uh, referred to as the the Wartburg castle, which is a fantastic castle oh, uh, beautiful. nestled in the heart of central Germany yeah um, it's actually situated high atop. Uh, a sort of a mountainous area, right uh, overlooking the, the town of Eisenach, which is where J.S. Bach was, was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's this beautiful location, but it is in the middle of nowhere, Germany. And that's really good for Luther right now, because things could not be hotter for him uh, in terms of his standing in the empire.
1: And while there, I mean, they create a whole identity for him and other pieces so that he's, uh, he, he essentially is able to just stay for several months without, uh, without anyone questioning who he is or what's going on or, or, or with news getting out to others that this is where he's been squirreled away.
0: Yeah, basically he's, he's, he's hiding there in anonymity. Uh, there's one very famous uh, oil painting by... Uh, Lucas Kranach, uh of Luther with a beard. It's the only time that you see Luther bearded. Mm-hmm. You also see that he's grown his hair out, his, his famous um, uh, monk tonsure, the, the, the unique uh, uh, monastic haircut that basically follows male pattern, baldness, let's just be honest about <laughs> it, uh, is, is, uh, is, has been removed. It's now, he's now filled in his hair. Uh, and so he is, he's hiding under a pseudonym of Knight George, uh, and is basically in the, this north tower of this, this large castle with a bedroom and a small room uh, to, to do his work. And, and he's there for, for 10 months, and yet he's still, even in hiding and in an isolation, he's still thinking, he's still writing, he's still communicating, sending letters back and forth uh, to, to people in Wittenberg. He's still overseeing his reformation. But he's doing it from this uh, from this hidden location.
1: So while he's there, there the bulk of the production of his translation of scripture uh, comes to fruition. Uh, it, was this kind of respite exactly what was needed for the production of such a, uh, a massive work?
0: It certainly lended itself to, to that work. Um, he, you know, Luther actually in his writings lamented uh, the idleness of this 10 months and yet you look back at it and he was writing countless letters to people he he uh, put together an entire uh, german postal set um he uh, he wrote some of his uh, what or some to some of me some of my my favorite treaties of his like things like um the misuse of the mass mm-hmm. he's thinking about more formally how are we going to reform the german church once i get home uh and 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 yet you know, he says this is all idleness. Uh, and so it's really at, at the end of this time, uh, the end of this, around December of 1521 on into January of 1522, that he decides uh, in this moment to go about translating uh, the Bible into German, um, which incidentally wasn't an innovative thing. We think of this as innovative, but at the same time, there were at least 14 German translations of the Bible mm-hmm. at that time. And yet, this is the moment for Luther uh, to place his stamp on this and to do things, um, to do things his way, which, which his his German Bible then becomes really a, a, I would say, one of his two or three most important literary works of yeah. his entire career.
1: So, while he's producing this uh, this incredible translation, which. While there were other translations available, Luther intentionally prioritized a readable translation for the laity, right. um, and Correct. so that they could understand it, they could read it, uh, they could grasp uh, the Word of God. So, with the significance of the Scriptures itself, um, this this is you know bearing out Luther's own understanding. It's through his exegesis of uh, of the New Testament itself that. Yep. That is breeding in him the the and birthing out of him the the Reformation there in Germany. So this just to me seems like the perfect uh, and fitting component to produce and to work on while he's squirreled away in, in the tower uh, in, there yeah. in Germany.
0: It's it's really for him. It's a great opportunity to do a couple of different things. One, it's to to give God's people an updated version of God's word in a way in which they could understand it. He translated the Bible, not in a literal sense, but in a, as he would say, more sense to sense. And so yes. he wanted it to be something that the people could understand. Um, and so, so in this, this is where he actually takes the, the German language, which at the time is fragmented into all sorts of different dialects. Uh, and he helps to bring those together as best he can and selects terms and a prose that roughly 80 to 90% of most German-speaking people at the time would have been able to understand. Mm-hmm. And so he brings that all together. In fact, he helps to establish more formally the modern German that we have, uh, even creating some 300 different German words that didn't exist at the time. <laughs> um, so, so he's actually creating a vocabulary uh, for for the German-speaking people, but more than just giving them God's Word in their language, he was also doing something more subtle that I think most people don't understand, and that is to realize that every translation of the Bible is an interpretation of the Bible. Mm. And so what he's doing here is he's not just giving them the, the text of, of Holy Scripture, but he's doing it also through his interpretive lens. And he does this really in a number of different ways. He's got prefaces, for instance, that that instruct the reader how to read the text through his law gospel dialectic. He's got uh, glosses in the margins or interpretive um, frames of reference, ways to think about and interpret the text itself. Uh, He also very famously Uh, does a number of different things in terms of the the selection of words so very famously for instance uh, in Romans chapter 3 he will he'll stress uh, certain terms uh, in the text itself and and so just just as an example of that so like in in verse 20 of of 3 he'll uh, rather verse 19 of 3 he'll he'll uh, Emphasize instead of the, the focus of um, the being in the law, he focuses on the weight of being under the law. You know, oh, to, to 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 emphasize uh, the the being in the law is different than being under the the the, the weight of the law itself. And of course, then in um, uh, later on in Romans chapter three and verse uh, was it twenty eight, uh, he he talks about. Uh, which is, is a passage where Paul is talking about humanity being justified apart from works. Luther actually just throws a word in. He throws the German word align in, which means "alone." Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to emphasize that it is faith alone that is what gives a person a right standing before God, uh, not uh, not the works, uh, not the works itself, or not the law itself, and so. This, again, is his way of providing an interpretation of the text by his very means of translation.
1: So incredible. Uh, Ten months. Ten months after making a a, a bold declaration, uh, after a kidnapping that we're remembering today on This Week in Church History, and then Luther just sets to work. And it's this translation that becomes part of the backbone of at least the Reformation happening in Germany. Um, he comes out of hiding to deal with her- heresy in Wittenberg uh, that uh, his fellow colleagues the University of Wittenberg are, are a little frustrated with and need him to come and address. Um, that honestly, uh, in, in that case, dealing with his Wicow prophets, they are um, basically making their interpretations that of their own making. Uh, they're, they're elevating human reason or human understanding or experience. Uh, over that Mm -hmm. of the scriptures and so here comes luther (laughs) after being in the castle with the word of god saying this will not work (laughs) and he eventually you know comes back in public uh with the text and and again reemphasizing to the people that this is what matters this this is where we have to derive our authority
0: yeah and it's really fascinating because really what he's doing is he's fighting a battle on two fronts at that point because he is dealing with his vegal prophets who who have this ongoing progressive form of revelation that is very um, contradictory to what he understands as the normative authority of scripture, yep. this notion of sola scriptura. But he's also got to deal with his one time friend and colleague, Andreas Karlstad, who's taking a very literalistic, or what we sometimes refer to as a biblicist interpretation of the text, uh, a very simple, plain rendering of the text. And he's actually, that is, Karlstad is moving further and faster. Uh, in terms of reformation than Luther wants to do. And so, again, this is why his Bible is so important, is because, again, it's not just the text, but it's his interpretation of the text. And Luther, from the beginning, always envisioned uh, an ordered reformation, not one that was that was really prone to, um, to extremes, which he was fighting in that sense on, on, on both fronts. And so what he's got then is he's got the backbone for, uh, for this this Reformation, then it, in his text with which, interestingly enough, I mean it. We, we think of this as, as Luther's Bible, and yet it wasn't just his. I mean he he penned the he translates this New Testament, for instance, in just shy of eleven weeks yeah. uh, at the at the Warburg and yet he also has lots of his friends like Philip Melanchthon and Nicholas von Amsdorf and others who are helping to do the revisions and look this over. And then when it came time to to do the Old Testament, which is a massive undertaking, again, enlisting gospel partners and friends to help him in that until that was ultimately published in the early part of the 1530s. And then the text itself, when it first comes out, even this first edition of the New Testament, what's referred to as the September Testament from September of 1522, it doesn't even have Luther's name on the title page. It just says Mm -hmm. Wittenberg. Um, there's a sense in which this is really not about Luther, right? And it right. really, in that sense, was never about him. It was about getting God's word to the people. Uh, in that sense, he really was just a, an instrument, uh, you could say a medium, uh, to, to, to helping them to have a greater access both to God and ultimately to his word and the Holy Scriptures.
1: Well, Dr. Acker, thank you so much for joining with us to talk through this interesting aspect. Uh, in Luther's life, where he's kidnapped. But out of that kidnapping, he had unbelievable protection that allowed him to produce a work that became uh, so significant. I'm going to close with, uh, again, from the same uh, letter that I read earlier, his what to look for and expect in the Gospels. Uh, he states this at the close of that letter, Oh would to God that among Christians the pure gospel were known, and that most speedily there would be neither use nor need for this work of mine, that there would surely be hope that the Holy Scriptures, too, would come forth again in their worthiness. A fitting word for us today, uh, even in the 21st century, as Luther pins that 500 uh, years ago. Thank you, listener, for joining us for This Week in Church History. We look forward to seeing you next week.